God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet came close to stumbling. My steps had almost slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant, as I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For there are no pains in their death, and their body is fat. They are not in trouble, as other men, nor are they plagued like mankind. Therefore pride is their necklace. The garment of violence covers them. Their eye bulges from fatness. The imitations of their heart run riot. The imaginations of their heart run riot. They mock and wickedly speak of oppression. They speak from on high. They have set their mouth against the heavens, and their tongue parades through the earth. Therefore his people return to this place, and waters of abundance are drunk by them. They say, how does God know? And is there knowledge with the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked, and always at ease they have increased in wealth. Surely in vain I have kept my heart pure and washed my hands in, innocent, in innocence. For I have been stricken all day long and chastened every morning. If I had said, I will speak thus, behold, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. When I pondered to understand this, it was troublesome in my sight. Until I came into the sanctuary of God, then I perceived their end. Surely you set them in slippery places, you cast them down to destruction. How they are destroyed in a moment, they are utterly swept away by sudden terrors. Like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when aroused, you will despise their form. When my heart was embittered and I was pierced within, then I was senseless and arrogant. I was like a beast before you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You have taken hold of my right hand with your counsel. You will guide me and afterward receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And besides you, I desire nothing on earth. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Behold, those who are far from you will perish, for you have destroyed all those who are unfaithful to you. But as for me, the nearness of God is my good. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word. Let's pray. Oh, Father, how kind you are to have given us this word this sufficient word, this glorious word, the, the word that testifies to the truth of your ways and, Lord, to the implications uh, that that truth has for the way we must live. Uh, Father, it's easy for us as we behold the world around us to have a heart like Asaph's at first, Lord, to um, see injustice and wickedness and pain and suffering and to doubt your goodness, to doubt the quickness of uh, your solution, of your redemption, uh, Father, but we understand from your word that you have your purposes. And Lord, I pray that our experience this morning would be like Asaph's when he came to the house of God and received instruction. Uh, Father, he talks about how he needed your counsel, and we need your counsel in order to understand these things the way we ought to, in order to be able to, to receive as a good gift the, the life that you give for our enjoyment. So I pray, Lord, you would have your way with us and that you would accomplish these things in this time. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so this is week four of six of our survey through the book of Ecclesiastes. 
uh, and you see I've kept it consistent at the top of the outline there, uh, putting Solomon's main point in the book of Ecclesiastes at the top, uh, which is this, the best thing in the world is to eat, drink, and enjoy your labor. This is the gift of God. And we see that as Solomon's main point as he repeats it in the similar words, not always the same words, but the same theme for sure uh, in those sections that are noted there right beneath that, chapter 2, chapter 5, and chapter 8, uh, giving us the breakup for the structure of the book. Uh, so I have it there, the point of Ecclesiastes, enjoy life as God's good gift. Uh, so in the three weeks we've studied Ecclesiastes so far, we've seen that Solomon, uh, near the end of his life, as he writes, he was on a quest, and really this, this quest uh, came earlier for the most part, but a quest to discern and to communicate to us the ultimate purpose and meaning of life. Solomon had tried everything, and as we saw in those early weeks, he had tried and he had been really successful from a worldly or a fleshly perspective at having tried everything to see if any of it was good for its own sake, to see if he could leave some wisdom as to how to make the creation satisfy us. That was kind of what he was going for, was to be able to say whether or not that was the case. Uh, and you guys remember his conclusion for all of that? Once he tried it all, what was it worth? Nothing. It was all vanity. It was all striving after the wind. For its own sake, everything was worth nothing. So everything is absolutely worthless, Solomon would say, apart from one thing, which is the fear of the Lord. Uh, and so Solomon is trying to drive us, and we see this especially as we get to the end of the book, which we've previewed several times, but we won't be there uh, in study for a couple more weeks yet. He's trying to drive us to gratefully accept the fact that we can never make creation produce joy or satisfaction or peace for us. We can never get those things from the creation. And it is so freeing when we finally come to this conclusion. And how destructive we see it was in Solomon's life that he didn't come to that conclusion sooner. So we'll see as we get into uh, coming chapters that he is exhorting young people, people who are not near the end of their life yet, to remember their creator in the days of their youth, to do things in the fear of the Lord, and to connect their enjoyment of life with fearing God. Uh, so we saw, we started to see a little bit last week, and we're going to see it more today, that one of the major obstacles to receiving all things freely and joyfully from God's hand is the difficulty we sometimes have when we perceive uh, the hardships and the injustices of life in a world under curse. Um, sometimes it can seem like goodness and justice will never come, and Solomon was lamenting some of that in what we read last week. It can seem like evil and suffering are going to be enduring realities, and they can even seem unfair under God's rule. Uh, so in the chapters we consider today, chapters 6 through 8, Solomon seeks to turn the way we think about these things on its head. We have sort of a worldly, uh, a human way of human wisdom of thinking about these things, uh, and really, and this is why I read Psalm 73 at the start, I think that what Asaph received which he recounts in Psalm 73 when he went to the house of God, that kind of peace that he comes to at the end of Psalm 73 is the kind of peace that comes from understanding things the way Solomon is instructing us to understand them in this text today, rather than how we tend to understand them according to our flesh, according to worldly wisdom, the way that the world would tell us to understand those things. Uh, so last week in chapters 3 to 5, we considered that God has a beautiful and comprehensive or a sovereign plan. 
uh, which we need to come to grips with if we're going to live life with enjoyment uh, in a world that is cursed, that experiences hardship and pain. So this week we come to chapters 6 through 8, and we're going to be explaining and applying. Those are the blanks there. This week, explaining and applying that plan, that beautiful and comprehensive sovereign plan. So that's sort of where we've been and where we're going today. Uh, number one, you see there I have three main points. First in uh, chapters 6 and then the first 15 verses of 7, uh, yeah, would be understanding rightly God's way, so understanding things God's way, in terms of what we see on the outside. And then under that, you see the two letters there, so that's your blank is outside, uh, sort of the substructure is prosperity is not always necessarily or always good. That's chapter 6. And then letter B, adversity or affliction is not always or necessarily evil. And that's the first 15 verses of chapter 7. So first, prosperity is not always or necessarily good. And again, this is talking about what we see when we look at the world around us, when we look at our lives, when we look at the lives of others, like Asaph was doing at the beginning of Psalm 73 when he considered the prosperity of the wicked. So that's Solomon's point here is prosperity is not always or necessarily good. Starting in verse 1 of chapter 6, Solomon writes, There is an evil which I have seen under the sun, and it's interesting what the evil is. It is prevalent among men, a man to whom God has given riches and wealth and honor, so that his soul lacks nothing of all he desires. And Solomon may even be referring, referring here to himself, because that was very much his experience. Yet, he says, God has not empowered him to eat from them, for a foreigner enjoys them. This is vanity and a severe affliction. So as Solomon tested things, he saw that for their own sakes, and that would be what he's describing as a man who is just trying to accumulate for himself to serve his own pleasures— and Solomon had a lot of experience with that, that leads to just dejection, not joy, but misery. This, he says, is vanity and a severe affliction. Uh, and then he kind of details what a person could be given that would be considered great gain. He says, verse 3, if a man fathers a hundred children and lives many years, however many they may be, but his soul is not satisfied with good things, and he does not even have a proper burial, then I say, better the miscarriage than he. If he's not able to enjoy his life, it would have been better off to have not come to life in the first place, just to have been miscarried. Verse 4, for it comes in futility and goes into obscurity, and its name is covered in obscurity. It never sees the sun, and it never knows anything. It never knows the misery of having these good things that you can't ultimately enjoy. It is better off than he. Even if the other man lives a thousand years twice and does not enjoy good things, do not all go to one place? All a man's labor is for his mouth, and yet the appetite is not satisfied. So he's not telling us necessarily anything that he hadn't already kind of alluded to in earlier chapters, but he's really driving the point home here that all of these things accumulated for their own sake, although the world sees these as the best and the things that are worth striving after, they are not always or necessarily good. And that is a corrective that is necessary for us really probably daily to understand that those things that our hearts are tempted to go after, we see them all over the place, all around us, they really in and of themselves are not always or necessarily good. 
Uh, Now notice the kinds of things that Solomon lists here. Riches, wealth, honor, children, good things, and a long life. Uh, And like I said, think about how these are all around us. Think about how that compares with the message you get from television, from print magazines, even your friends Facebook or Pinterest. Isn't this the message you find coming with the goods, services, and pastimes on display, things after which you can throw your money and your time and your pursuits, that this is what makes for a good and happy life. That's what all of that advertising is trying to tell us. It's, it's around us constantly. So here in Ecclesiastes 6, Solomon lists out many of these good gifts, and he's using some hyperbole for good measure, like living a thousand years twice, in order to demonstrate that the blessings that many would suppose from that message that's all around us. Many would suppose that these things make for a good life, but they are not always enjoyed by those who receive them. And we can see that. We can see that that's true, probably even in our own experience. This is what Solomon describes in verse 1 as an evil which he has seen under the sun and which is prevalent among men. Uh, Just in the last couple days, this reality was reinforced to me. I heard a story about uh, an extended relative who is... 70 years old, and um, just in the last year, he's left his second wife. Actually, they're not divorced yet, but he's, I think, living with um, a, a woman who's also married, not divorced yet, and family members have called him out on this, and uh, his response has been, to one in particular, I know you're religious and, and I respect that, but I'm 70 years old, and he's a successful physician. Um, he has 10 kids. And he's, he's, he's achieved a lot of these things that you would think from a worldly perspective would be valuable. Uh, his response was, I'm 70, I have a little bit of life, yef- life left, and I just want to live it feeling like I'm loved by somebody. So he's just full of emptiness. And I think until then, and this is, this is um, Kelly's family, um, where this is happening, and until we heard that, I think Kelly was kind of thinking in terms of, this is my wife, for those of you who don't know us, Uh, thinking in terms of uh, condemnation rather than sympathy um, and compassion uh, towards this this relative. Uh, So there is just one example of how you can have all of those things that the world strives after and just feel empty and looking for something uh, at the age of 70. Uh, It is all too easy, like, like that man has experienced, to look like you have it all, only in truth to be miserable and terrified of the death that is inevitably approaching. Now, the truth is that worldly wisdom might agree with Solomon here to some extent, and you might hear people say, we should simply count our blessings and seek to be satisfied uh, with what we have. Um, I remember how on my first visit to an impoverished country, I observed that although the unbelieving people there uh, had so much less than people had where I grew up, and I was like, 19 years old, I think. So it was really the first time I had seen that kind of poverty. So even though these people had way less than the people had where I grew up, uh, they seemed more content with what they had. Uh, But you might be a little surprised that Solomon uh, recognizes this fact and doesn't find a solution in that. He says, verse 8, For what advantage does the wise man have over the fool? What advantage does the poor man have knowing how to walk before the living. And that's what he's referring to. If you're poor, then you are less prone to thinking that things are the answer to, uh, to life because you're not, you don't have the capacity to, to get those things and to strive after them. It doesn't work out. So you're more likely to count your blessings and think, like he says here, 
What the eye sees is better than what the soul desires. What I have in front of me, let me hope in that and just be satisfied with that and uh, try to be content with that instead of striving for what, what I would desire otherwise. But he says, verse 9, this too is futility and striving after the wind. Solomon is saying that the wise poor man, the one who seeks satisfaction with what his eyes see rather than what his soul desires, has no advantage. This kind of supposed contentment is also futility. Uh, Now, I think there's a good chance uh, that you know this from experience if you stop and think about it. Aren't we often quick to comfort ourselves or to comfort others with the knowledge that it could be worse? Like, at least I still have my family, or at least I didn't lose all my savings, or at least I still have a roof over my head. But the trouble with this is that those things which we reassure ourselves with might just as quickly flee from us. Imagine if Job had responded to the news of losing his livestock, his servants, and his children by saying, it could be worse, at least I still have my health. That point of hope and comfort would have been dashed in the very next section of the narrative. Job 2.7 says, Then Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and smote Job with sore boils from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. Verse 10 here in uh, Ecclesiastes reminds us of an overarching theme in the book of Job. God's utter and absolute sovereignty over all of these things. Solomon writes, Whatever exists has already been named, and it is known what man is. And what is that? Limited. Job didn't know everything that was going on. It would have been vain. It would have been futile for him to hope in the things he hadn't lost yet because he was going to lose them. He continues, For he cannot dispute with him who is stronger than he is. And you see that all throughout the rest of the book of Job. We cannot dispute with God. God has orchestrated things to be the way that they are in this world. So the reason wealth and family and health and long life cannot and will not ultimately satisfy is that this is God's good design and purpose. He has made these contrasts, good things to enjoy, but at the same time, sufferings to lament. He has made that. He's purposed it. He has made them unpredictable for the good purpose of leading us to see our own helplessness and inability to make things right so that we would fear him instead of putting our hope in what we can't control and in what we can so easily, what he can so, I'm sorry, and what it can so easily change for us. Those things we can't control, they're one way one minute and a different way the next. We can't do anything about that. So what's our tendency? Our tendency is to fear things, to fear circumstances that are out of our control, to fear people, to fear losing our money, to fear losing our health, to fear not being able to get our health back. What Solomon is driving at is instead of fearing all of those things, fear the one who is in control of all of those things, and you will have peace. But that's actually getting a little bit ahead of ourselves. Uh, First, in the last couple verses of chapter 6, Solomon sets up for chapter 7 by asking what is now kind of a familiar question, probably. Verse 11, For there are many words which increase futility. What then is the advantage to a man? So as he's been asking Uh, kind of throughout, what advantage is there? If everything is vain, what's good? Verse 12, for who knows what is good for a man during his lifetime, during the few years of his futile life? He will spend them like a shadow. For who can tell a man what will be after him under the sun? So the thought here is kind of that a man can talk and reason all he wants about how he might change things or acquire more in order to finally be satisfied. And, And you see that. Again, you see that in probably your own lives, and you see that all around us. 
we, we tend to hope in how we can make things better tomorrow, how we can uh, capitalize on these circumstances for our gain in some probably worldly sense. But Solomon has said ultimately all of that is futile, and he's already proven it from his own experience. So if everything that might seem to the world is good is not always and necessarily the good, then the question is, what is good? How should we spend this life? Uh, we're going to be here, so what should we be seeking? If not riches and children and health and houses and lands and power and long life, what should we seek? Uh, and Solomon's answer in the first part of chapter 7 might be a little bit surprising. Uh, he starts verse 1. A good name is better than a good ointment, and the day of one's death is better than the day of one's birth. It is better to go to a house of mourning than to go to a house of feasting, because that is the end of every man, and the living takes it to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter, for when a face is sad, a heart may be happy. The mind of the wise is in the house of mourning, while the mind of fools is in the house of pleasure. It is better to listen to the rebuke of a wise man than for one to listen to the song of fools. So here Solomon lists a number of situations that we would typically think of as bad. Things like death, mourning, sorrow, rebuke. And he contrasts those positively with experiences we would usually find preferable. Like birth, feasting, laughter, pleasure, singing. So perhaps because he knows that that claim that the hard things are, are, are good and easy. I'm sorry. Oh, hard things are good, and then easy and pleasurable and light things are bad. These claims can initially seem absurd to us, and certainly they initially seem absurd to the world, that things like death and mourning and sadness and sorrow are better than laughter and pleasure and enjoyment. That, that can seem absurd. So because of that, Solomon offers a reason we saw it in verse 2 as to why mourning is better than feasting. He says, because death is the end of every man and the living takes it to heart. Now this reasoning can apply to the whole list. One who is satisfied or diverted with the many good things of life, uh, he might be distracted from the truth that this life is fleeting. So if you manage to fill yourself with houses and lands and good food and enjoyments, you're distracted from eternal things is what Solomon is saying. So you're distracted from the truth that this life is fleeting and that the reality of God and his judgment is eternal. That is what's truly weighty. That is what's truly real. What Solomon is saying is that it is good of God to bring circumstances and experiences that direct our attention away from the fleeting pleasures of this life to things of greater and more lasting consequence. And I think Paul is driving, not making that same point, but observing some of the same things in Romans 1 when he says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness, because that is what, because that is, that is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. Because everyone lives in this world under curse, under difficulty, under sorrow, suffering, pain, it's, it's evident to us that there is a God and that he has wrath against our sin. And that is necessary for us to know if we're going to take his solution and do something about it. Returning to him in the fear of him instead of in the fear of those circumstances that are beyond our control. 
So it is good for us to know the truth about God's wrathful judgment against sin. And nowhere, I think Solomon is saying, is this clearer than in death. But it is also clearer, it should be, if you're thinking the way Solomon would have you think, in the futility of the fleeting enjoyment of creation. Because of death, decay, sadness, injustice, and anything else that, keep, that ultimately keeps people from being satisfied, but by their endless pursuit of satisfaction in creation. Um, so, uh, Solomon is pointing out to us that uh, everything is futile. It's not just death. Your experience of death pervades all of life because the things you try to make satisfy you are passing away, and they don't bring that ultimate satisfaction. So Solomon continues in verse 6, For as the crackling of thorn bushes under a pot, so is the laughter of the fool, and this too is futility. For oppression makes a wise man mad, and a a bribe corrupts the heart. The end of a matter is better than its beginning. Patience of spirit is better than haughtiness of spirit. So like the other seemingly good things that we saw in the first five verses, uh, laughter can seem harmless and enjoyable. But again, if it is apart from the fear of the Lord, Solomon is saying it's futile. Similarly, verse 8, a bribe might at first get the one who's giving the bribe what he wants, but in the end, it's going to have a corrupting influence on the one who gave the bribe and also on the one who took it, and really on the whole idea of justice in society, which is a recurring uh, issue for Solomon also, the fact that justice doesn't always seem to be served, at least not quickly. Uh, And then verse 8 sort of summarizes and reinforces Solomon's point. Although you might be tempted to respond to the difficulties God brings and the futility of trying but failing to enjoy good gifts for their own sake, uh, you might be tempted to respond with frustration and impatience and anger. It is better to patiently wait for God's purpose to be worked out and finally shown. So the tendency can be to rage in our hearts against God's beautiful and comprehensive plan that we saw last week and to resent it, to not want it, to not be patient for the outcome of it. But Solomon is saying, this is like what James says in chapter 1, the anger of man does not accomplish the righteousness of God. Be patient for God to show his righteousness and bringing all things to fruition is what Solomon is urging. Verses 9 and 10 continue in a similar vein. Uh, Solomon writes, Do not be eager in your heart to be angry, for anger resides in the bosom of fools. Do not say, why is it that the former days were better than these? For it is not from wisdom that you ask about this. So these are possible responses and and even likely responses to adversity. It is so easy to become angry towards God or at least towards circumstances and to give yourself to believing that it's wrong, that he has you in the position of suffering and dejection. Uh, And that can come with any failure to enjoy creation for its own sake as just dejection because you weren't able to accomplish it. Uh, It's also possible for this kind of dissatisfaction to lead to a response that longs for the good old days, to say, you know, why were the former days better than these? I want to be out from under this adversity. Um, Just think of the the Israelites who had been oppressed under slavery in Egypt, uh, and then as God had them walking through intense difficulty in the desert, they looked back with longing uh, to those days when they were oppressed. They wanted to be back in Israel, enjoy the garlic and the leeks and everything else that they thought was good. Again, remember, what Solomon is saying is that there's good reason to believe that adversity is often better than ease. Um, Just think of the words that many of us love from Psalm 119. Those words reinforce this truth. From Psalm 119, verse 67, Before I was afflicted, I went astray, 
but now I keep your word. That's how God oftentimes uses adversity, sorrow, death to turn us back to understanding eternal truths, to coming back to him in the fear of him, in the fear of his word. Uh, Similarly, verse 71, these kind of happen all in pretty close proximity in Psalm 119. Uh, The psalmist writes, it is good for me that I was afflicted that I may learn your statutes. So this isn't just something that Solomon sees in Ecclesiastes. It pervades uh, the rest of Scripture, that uh, good is not necessarily good in our perception. Bad is not necessarily bad in our perception. And then verse 75, I know, O Lord, that your judgments are righteous and that in faithfulness you have afflicted me. So it's God's good purpose that brings difficulty, that brings what we perceive as to be bent or crooked, and we can't straighten it. It's his goodness, his faithfulness that does it. Uh, As one commentator has said, to take the approach in verses 9 and 10 to resent or to wish away the difficulties that the Lord has ordained for you is to worry unnecessarily or prematurely. It is to give way to a fool's approach to problems. That's fearing creation. That's fearing the creature. That's fearing present circumstances instead of fearing God. So instead of that response, Solomon commends wisdom, verse 12. For wisdom is protection, just as money is protection. But the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the life of its possessors. And here he's speaking of God's wisdom, true wisdom. And that wisdom is, as we saw a minute ago from Psalm 119, It is the biblical understanding that affliction is the appointment of God. It is the good purpose of God. Verse 13, he writes, Consider the work of God, for who is able to straighten what he has bent? So again, pointing to God's sovereignty over those things that in our flesh we are tempted to wish were different, to want to change. God has purposed the afflictions and adversities in life. He says through Isaiah, in Isaiah chapter 45, that men may know from the rising to the setting of the sun that there is no one besides me. I am the Lord and there is no other. And then listen to what he says about himself. The one forming light and creating darkness, causing well-being and creating calamity. I am the Lord who does all these. And that word that's translated there, calamity, is the word ra'ah, and it means bad. It's most often, probably in the Old Testament, translated evil. Causing well-being and creating ra'ah, creating bad, calamity, evil. God is the one who's behind that. He uses certainly instruments. You see that in the narrative with Job. He uses Satan. He uses uh, evil spirits, spirits at various times to accomplish these things. But they are his good purposes, and they work out for the good of his people. So friends, I hope and pray that you can find the encouragement and the peace that the Lord, through Solomon, would want you to have from these truths. Solomon's observations in these chapters concerning prosperity and adversity, these together begin to explain how a person can have peace in the midst of a world in chaos, a world under the curse, a world in which it often seems that the wicked get good things and the righteous get trouble. If that is bothersome to you, and it really, in some sense, it should be, it is to all of us, then we need to have our minds renewed, our thinking changed, away from the way the world perceives and rages against these things, to having peace along the lines of what Solomon is suggesting. 
This is clearly what Solomon believes should be a response to these things. God's way, the reverse of how we are usually in our flesh inclined to see them. He says, verse 14, in the day of prosperity, be happy. So like he's been encouraging us throughout, enjoy life in this world. In the day of prosperity, be happy. But in the day of adversity, consider. Don't get upset and impatient, but consider. God has made the one as well as the other and for this purpose, so that man will not discover anything that will be after him. We have to trust him. We have to fear him, not creation, not our circumstances. So do you see here the convergence of Solomon's main point in Ecclesiastes, that we should enjoy life as God's good gift with a decisive foundation for it, that we must fear him, fear him and not creation. If we have this mindset, we can enjoy life and God's good gifts, knowing that God is good, even in taking them, and letting them go the way that they will under the curse. Because those good things, they won't last. Solomon's been telling us that from the beginning, from chapter 1. Those things are vanity. Those things are fleeting. But we can trust God when they go away, when they are shown to be fleeting and changing. God has made us to be dependent on him. We are not able to know or to plan for what comes next. But we can trust that whether that seems good or bad, whether it seems good or bad, it is from God And those things that seem bad are actually often better for us than things that seem good. So again, the reverse of how the world is inclined to think and how we in our flesh are inclined to think. Uh, Now, lest we should be confused on this point, Solomon reminds us that he is not saying these things as a starry-eyed optimist. Solomon's not like an everything is bright and everything is good kind of guy. I think if you've been paying attention since chapter 1, you know that's true. On the contrary, Solomon has seen enough evil uh, as he has investigated reality that he, of all people, might feel justified to be cynical and jaded. And some people actually mistaken, mistakenly take Solomon that way. He writes in verse 15, I have seen everything during my lifetime of futility. There is a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness, and there is a wicked man who prolongs his life in his wickedness. So Solomon's experience is very much that things are not as they should be. But the response is to see things God's way instead of the fleshly way. Uh, So that was uh, chapter 6, verse 1 through chapter 7, verse 15, understanding rightly God's way, what we see on the outside. Uh, Starting in the next verse, verse 16 of chapter 7, Solomon helps us from another angle. Uh, We can also understand what God is doing better. So this is in in terms of explaining and applying uh, the truth of God's beautiful and comprehensive plan. We can do that better if we understand not only the externals, what's outside, but also the internals. In this section, Solomon is going to urge us to pay attention to motives, to what's going on in the heart. Uh, So this is number two on your outline there, rightly understanding, understanding it God's way, what's on the inside So that's your blank, the inside. Now the point here is that we should not think that those, including ourselves, who seem to be going through what we might think of as unfair suffering, um, so those that we might think of as they don't deserve that, uh, we shouldn't think of those as being necessarily as good as they seem, those people who are going through that seemingly unfair suffering, including ourselves. Verse 16, Solomon writes, Do not be excessively righteous and do not be overly wise. 
Why should you ruin yourself? Do not be excessively wicked and do not be a fool. Why should you die before your time? Uh, Now, as you might imagine, these verses, especially verse 16, are subject to gross misinterpretation. Um, a key here, and this is something really to take note of because it's, it's very important in terms of understanding this correctly. When Solomon says, do not be overly wise in verse 16, he's using a reflexive form of the verb, which means he's saying, do not be wise in yourself. Don't consider yourself wise. Or like he says in Proverbs, don't be wise in your own eyes. Does that make sense? He's not saying, don't be wise, period. It's a reflexive verb, so it's basically don't be wise in yourself, in your own estimation. What he's teaching in both verses is this. There's a tendency to respond to difficulty in two ways that are both sinful. One of those is with self-righteousness. So seeing, you know, basically looking at circumstances in which you're suffering and saying, I'm too good for this. I, I, you know, tithe. I go to church. I pray. I shouldn't be experiencing this. My hands are clean. My heart is pure. And Solomon's saying that's the wrong response to suffering. It's one of two wrong responses to suffering. The the other tendency is just to give oneself to sin. Basically, the thought would be this. Well, it didn't do me any good uh, to be good, so I might as well give myself to every sin and folly that might be pleasurable. So those are the two extremes Solomon is, is identifying in terms of an internal response to suffering and pain under curse. And both of these ways, verses 16 and 17, Solomon says, lead to death and destruction. So what you must choose instead, again, is true wisdom, not self-wisdom. Self-wisdom being what's in verse 16. Verse 18, he says, it is good that you grasp one thing and also not let go of the other, for the one who fears God comes forth with both of them. Wisdom strengthens a wise man more than ten rulers who are in a city. Indeed, there is not a righteous man on earth who continually does good and who never sins. So in those verses, Solomon would lead us to true wisdom, such that in some sense, you know you're wise because you have God's revelation about these matters. So that's what you have on the one hand. Uh, And you're submissive to God's commandments. You're submissive to God's wisdom. So in some sense, you know you do have wisdom. But in another sense, the other thing you come out with is another kind of wisdom. Let me see, I lost my place here for a second. Hmm. So that kind of wisdom, God's wisdom, having that kind of wisdom, Solomon says, verse 18, is superhuman. It's stronger than, I'm sorry, this is verse 19, stronger than 10 human rulers. Uh, And pay attention here to the fact that the opposite of that uh, is the, oh, I'm sorry, the source of that wisdom is the opposite from what it was in verse 16. Here, rather than being self-wise, the man who fears God comes forth with wisdom, having avoided both self-righteousness and abject foolishness. So those two things that we shouldn't respond to in our hearts uh, in those ways, we shouldn't respond to adversity, we come, if we have God's wisdom, having avoided those two traps. So the truly wise man is wise with God's wisdom, which strengthens him so that he's stronger than ten rulers. Uh, but on the other hand, and this is, this is the contrast, really this is why it is divine wisdom. It's so contrary to human wisdom. This wisdom also recognizes that the one who receives it from God is still subject to the truth that we see in verse 20, that, that each of us is one of those on earth 
even if we're fearing God and keeping his commandments, and that's the only way we're going to recognize this, that we are one of those of whom it can be said at the same time that we are not righteous and that we sin and do not do good. There's a humbling effect of God's wisdom when it comes to us that we aren't self-wise, we aren't wise in our own eyes. We are humbled by seeing the perfection of those commandments and our inability to do them perfectly. So the wise man, the truly wise man, is, is both wise with God, God's wisdom and humble in himself, knowing his own sinfulness and weakness. So letter A there, true wisdom, is God's wisdom. And it does not look at all like man's wisdom. So God's your first blank and man's your second blank. So this tension, uh, as you can see, sort of parallels the tension of the observation that Solomon has been making about enjoyment and futility. Um, you know, wisdom isn't necessarily what it seems. Enjoyment isn't necessarily what it seems. And so Solomon goes on to apply this to others, to relationships with others, and to how we see others. So how does this wisdom work out in how we relate to other people? Verse 21. Also do not take seriously all the words which are spoken, so that you will not hear your servant cursing you. For you also have realized that you likewise have many times cursed others. I tested all this with wisdom, and I said, I will be wise, but it was far from me. So Solomon did try that way of being self-wise, and it didn't work out. What has been is remote and exceedingly mysterious. Who can discover it? Now, in the first part there uh, that we're finding here in this section, verses 21 to 24, Solomon is teaching that having been chastened by knowing our own sinfulness, receiving that aspect of God's wisdom, having been chastened by it, uh, for that's part of true wisdom. Uh, if we've received that, we'll be quick to give others the benefit of the doubt. And we won't be quick to listen to everything they say and immediately come to judgment uh, against them because we've been, again, humbled by receiving that part of God's wisdom. Uh, the Apostle Paul agrees with this in 1 Corinthians 4, where he writes in verse 5, Therefore do not go on passing judgment before the time, but wait until the Lord comes, who will both bring to light the things hidden in the darkness and disclose the motives of men's hearts, and then each man's praise will come to him from God. So it's not for us. You know, Solomon is encouraging us to see our motives, our motivations, and to judge rightly, but not to condemn others, to be slow to that. And that's going to be the effect if you have that component of God's wisdom in your heart is you will be humbled by it and slow to judge the motives of others' hearts. Uh, but in verses 25 to 26, Solomon gives something of a balancing truth to that. Even as you assume the best of others, which is what he'd be encouraging in those earlier verses, don't look to other people for righteousness. You won't find it there. Righteousness is not going to come from other people. It's only going to come from God. Verse 25, I directed my mind to know, to investigate, and to seek wisdom and an explanation, and to know the, the evil of folly and the foolishness of madness. And I discovered more bitter than death the woman whose heart is snares and nets, whose hands are chains. One who is pleasing to God will escape from her, but the sinner will be captured by her. Behold, I have discovered this, says the preacher, adding one thing to another to find an explanation, which I am still seeking but have not found. I have found one man among a thousand, but I have not found a woman among all these. Behold, I have found only this, that God made men upright, but they have sought out 
many devices. Uh, just a note, real quick, on the fact that you might think it sounds like there's some disparity in Solomon's experience of finding righteousness among men as opposed to finding it among women. Um, there's kind of a textual key here, just in, in context, uh, key to avoiding that trap, which is to consider what kind of woman Solomon was seeking out. Uh, and sadly, it's probably not surprising considering what we've already seen about Solomon's history with women. Verse 26, he said, More bitter than death is the woman whose heart is snares and nets, whose hands are chains. Um, now again, it's not surprising that Solomon surrounded himself with men and women for different reasons. Uh, he generally did not find encouragement to godliness among any of them, but especially not among the women who were around him. They led his heart astray, even as we saw kings of Israel were warned in Deuteronomy 17 that that would be the case. Uh, but in any case, the, more importantly here, we see his conclusion. And it is this, God made man in his own image. He made him very good. Solomon says he made him upright. But as Solomon investigated, again, seeing if there was anything in creation that was not futile for its own sake, Solomon came to the same conclusion as the psalmist and as the Apostle Paul, that there is none righteous, not even one. All have gone astray. God made men upright, but they have sought out many devices. Uh, so Solomon teaches us that just as we should not assume that, that apparently external circumstances are actually good, nor that bad circumstances are actually bad, even so we must not assume based on our limited understanding of a person's religious appearance, including our own, uh, that we have understood the inner character of that person. And of course, like I said, that includes ourselves. So in particular, this has reference in context to self-righteousness. Do not be deceived by self-righteousness, especially your own, but rather see that true wisdom sees one's own need to receive God's righteousness as a gift. And of course, that is the gospel. We have nothing good in ourselves, nothing to offer to God. If we're going to have righteousness, if we're going to have purpose, if we're going to have meaning, it's all lumped together. It must be received from God in the fear of God. So good is not necessarily good, bad is not necessarily bad, and righteousness is not necessarily righteous. Solomon has acknowledged that these can be frustrating dilemmas. But starting with verse 1 of chapter 8, he explains that the wisdom that comes from fearing God can solve this kind of dilemma. Verse 1 of chapter 8. Who is like the wise man and who knows the interpretation of a matter? A man's wisdom illumines him and causes his stern face to beam. And this is talking about the right kind of wisdom and the effect that it can have on your countenance. Like when God said to Cain, who had a fallen countenance, if you do good, will not your countenance be lifted? So as with everything Ecclesiastes has taught us so far, if we can accept God's way of seeing good and bad, of seeing righteousness and unrighteousness, then we can have peace. We can have enjoyment of life. What was once a stern face, a person maybe you could say befuddled and frustrated by pain and suffering and unfairness, that face can beam now with joy and peace knowing that God is in control and that God has a good purpose for the way he has made life under curse bent and crooked. It's like, again, Asaph in Psalm 73. You can go from being brutish and really a danger to yourself and others, as Asaph describes he was and would have been if he had opened his mouth. You can go from that to a person who knows that God is your only good. 
Isn't there just such peace and glory and opportunity for enjoyment there? Now, actually, in chapter 8, Solomon is still getting there. He's not quite yet to the realization that really helped Asaph in Psalm 73. First, he actually points to something good in the here and now that can help us, a grace from God that can help us to see that he has made some good provision in this world to help with the difficulty that we might have with some of the dilemmas we've seen. Uh, And this is verses 2 through 6, which for the sake of time, I'm going to summarize very briefly. He's saying that government is a good gift, a restraining effect on some of the injustice and the evil in society. He's really making the same point that Paul makes in Romans 13. So God is not blind to the fact of injustice, and he doesn't just say, forget about it and just hope in eternity. He makes that provision for us here. Um, And that's an important lesson for us to hear, maybe especially in a political climate uh, where we're inclined to see those of an opposing political persuasion as our enemies, uh, even or perhaps especially if they're holding the power of government. Uh, And just remember when Paul wrote Romans 13, Nero was emperor, and he was saying to Uh, Peter said to honor him. Uh, So we don't just see our political opponents as our enemies, particularly if they have the power of government. They're God's gift to us. God's sovereignty has put them there. Uh, The wording at the end of verse 5, the sort of section that I just briefly summarized, for a wise heart knows the proper time and procedure, that marks Solomon's return to his earlier theme of seeing all things, now including government authority, as part of God's good, God's beautiful, and comprehensive sovereign plan. So he moves in the closing verses of chapter 8, again, to consider, um, or our section here, I should say, to consider not just the present, but the ultimate end of each man. Verse 7, if no one knows what will happen, who can tell him when it will happen? No man has authority to restrain the wind with wind, or authority over the day of death. And there is no discharge in the time of war, and evil will not deliver those who practice it. All this I have seen and applied my mind to every deed that has been done under the sun, wherein a man has exercised authority over another man to his hurt. So again, he's seen that uh, the government not go the way it's supposed to go and actually serve to be an injustice. Verse 10, So then I have seen the wicked buried, those who used to go in and out from the holy place. And that's, that's worth noting. He's saying the wicked ultimately don't prosper. They ultimately go to their death. And he's pointing to the religious wicked those who used to go in and out from the holy place, and they are soon forgotten in the city where they did thus. This too is futility, because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed quickly, because that doesn't happen immediately in our experience. Therefore, the hearts of the sons of men among them are given fully to do evil. So people see that God doesn't bring his ultimate solution to bear immediately, and a lot of people take that as a license to just go ahead and indulge their wickedness. Verse 12, although a sinner does evil a hundred times and may lengthen his life, still I know that it will be well for those who fear God, who fear him openly. But it will not be well for the evil man. He will not lengthen his days like a shadow because he does not fear God. So that is where Solomon comes to that same final peace-giving conclusion as Asaph in Psalm 73. And, and uh, I'll read just a few verses from Psalm 73 to reinforce that point. Asaph wrote at the beginning, verse 3, For I was envious of the arrogant as I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Verse 17, That lasted until I came into the sanctuary of God. So until he came to receive God's wisdom, he had that opinion, that perception. 
Then he writes, I perceived their end, which is this. Surely you, God, set them in slippery places. You cast them down to destruction. How they are destroyed in a moment. They are utterly swept away by sudden terrors. So judgment does come on them. Asaph realizes, and that's what Solomon's saying in these verses. Like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when aroused, you will despise their form. For behold, those who are far from you will perish. You have destroyed all those who are unfaithful to you. So that is the ultimate end of wicked man, is, is there will be justice. So the ultimate solution to both the external and internal enigmas and dilemmas of life is God's eternal goodness and justice. So I think we see especially today that true wisdom, and again, this is coming from a man who had received the gift of extraordinary wisdom from God in a very special way, Solomon. He says that true wisdom in a man, uh, for him, a gift of God, he recognizes his own limitation. Because he's limited and he doesn't know what will happen unless God tells it to him, which he has in his word, he will patiently wait on the Lord to right every wrong and to make all things straight that are crooked under curse. Uh, if we can stop looking to creation to see uh, good really look good and bad really look bad and righteous really look righteous, then we can have peace. Our stern faces can beam if we can see things God's way. Uh, point number three, I'm going to give you the blank, but we don't have time. We'll, uh, I'll do some explaining of that next week, how to make a stern face beam have God's eternal perspective. Have God's eternal perspective. Uh, and that's really the summary of most of what we just went through. Uh, the final two verses, again, summarize Solomon's main point in the book, which is to enjoy God uh, and to enjoy, I'm sorry, to enjoy life as the good gift of God. Um, so although the world assumes that prosperity is always good and adversity is always bad, True wisdom teaches that God has purposed, especially adversity, especially the things that seem bad. He's purposed them to lead us to fear him so that we might receive and enjoy his goodness both now and forever. If we can see these realities according to God's wisdom, uh, even if the difficulty of our circumstances doesn't abate, it doesn't go away this side of eternity, that might just be enough to make this change in us, to make our, our stern countenances, our dejected faces uh, uplifted to give us joy. Uh, let's close in a word of prayer, and then we'll have some announcements. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time. We thank you for the truth of your word uh, and the way that you minister to us um, through men like Solomon. Uh, Father, I pray that you would seal these truths to our hearts, that you would help us not to see the things of the world, uh, the things of a world under curse, the way the world sees them, the way our flesh is tempted to see them, not to rage against your purposes, but to be submissive to your design uh, your sovereign design, and Lord, to find joy um, as you would have us find, as you through Solomon have commended to us. I pray, Lord, that we would be like Asaph at the end of Psalm 73, that we would know that you, that your nearness is our good. Uh, Father, I pray that you help us as we go from here, help us as we send out of the preaching of your word to have submissive hearts and be transformed as you've promised by your spirit uh, from one degree of glory to the next. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.